Ian Wanless is a professor of pure mathematics in the School of Mathematical Sciences at Monash University. He spends his days being paid to solve puzzles and contemplating what it means to be a former future fellow. <laughs> his area of research is combinatorics. Is, did I pronounce that correctly? Um, including the art of counting when you run out of fingers and toes. Please welcome Ian to the stage. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the moment you've all been waiting for, the climax of the evening, the one, the only, the award for the most Diabolical, devious, disingenuous, dishonest, dastardly, dodgy, um, uh, oh, there's got to be a few more. Um, yeah, that too. Uh, <laughs> no, what? Um, despicable, and generally just nasty, pure mathematical paper of all time. <laughs> now, modesty forbids me from nominating any of my own work for this prize, so once you take it out of the picture, the pickings are actually very slim. It turns out that mathematicians, by and large, are a fairly innocuous bunch. It's hard to cause havoc when no one cares or comprehends what you're doing. <laughs> but generally, the last intelligible word in a pure mathematics paper is abstract. <laughs> a, a very appropriate word in the circumstances, though perhaps it should be preceded by two others, warning and very. But be that as it may, we have found a winner, uh, deserving of all those D adjectives, and uh, I will get to him in a minute, but first, a special dishonourable mention to the runner-up. A Romanian mathematician by the name of, oh, sorry, I, I use that word fairly loosely, by the way, mathematician, uh, by the name of Danut Marcu, who between 1976 and 2008 published 129 papers, which garnered between them a grand total of five citations. Now, it, even by the slow-burning and low-citing traditions of the discipline, this seems like a fairly paltry haul for all that effort, but I would actually argue that it's more recognition than he deserves. And to, and to show you why, I'm going to quote for you uh, one of the reviews of one of his papers, which unfortunately is indicative of the whole. The review says, the author adds three introductory sentences to a paper of G.P. Whittle changes the word principle to fundamental and adds an acknowledgement to the referee, but fails to add an acknowledgement to Whittle for writing the original paper. <laughs> yes, that's right, Marku is a perfidious plagiarist, a prolific pirate, a preposterous plunderer, pilferer and pincher of the papers of his professional peers. <laughs> so why then does he procure the penultimate place and not the primary prize? <laughs> well, clearly he's operating in the wrong half of the alphabet, but aside from that, I mean, he, 
aside from raising some rather awkward questions about the peer review process, he didn't actually do that much damage. I really wish I could say that about tonight's winner, but I can't. I'm sure you're dying to know who it is, so uh, whilst I fumble with my imaginary envelope because the laboratory rules forbid props, I invite you to prepare to hiss the villain. Okay, and the winner of the most diabolical, etc., <laughs> is Professor Eliyahu Rips of Hebrew University, Jerusalem. <laughs> Unfortunately, Professor Rips can't be with us tonight to defend the indefensible, though he might choose different words, but uh, you'll have to make do with my thoroughly dispassionate account. Uh, Rips was born in, on 12th of December 1948 in uh, what is now Latvia but was then part of the Soviet Union. And he was one of the, in fact, the first Latvian to compete on the Russian team at the International Mathematics Olympiad. But only after a last-minute spineless capitulation by the IOC on allegations of state-sponsored doping. In some parallel universe, the Seven Network screened saturation wall-to-wall -wall coverage of the Mass Olympics and Rips became a household name. But in our universe, he had to wait a longer to become famous. His first attempt to get noticed was nearly his last. In 1969, whilst listening to his illegal shortwave radio, he learned that it was becoming all the rage to protest the Soviet occupation of Czechoslovakia via self-immolation. And he said to himself, oh, that's something I can see myself trying, you know, YOLO, YODO, whatever. <laughs> anyway, uh, luckily for him and for our story, he was saved by passers-by, and though badly burnt, he was carted off by the KGB for interrogation, and then sent somewhere that could probably safely be described as not a holiday camp. <laughs> it was only after two years of pressure from the international community that the Soviets were convinced that he'd had a long enough holiday and he should be allowed out to do some work again. And, in fact, they were convinced to let him emigrate to Israel. And it was there that his career really flourished. He became one of the leading experts in an area known as geometric group theory. Uh, he became a full professor at the Hebrew University, as well as holding visiting positions in the US at places like Berkeley and Chicago and, and uh, Columbia. And he won many prizes. He got the 1979 uh, Erdosh Prize from the Israeli Mathematics Society, for example. And in 1994, he was an invited speaker at the International Congress of Mathematicians, which is the biggest congress in the world for mathematics. So, <laughs> got to add those caveats. Um, but the point is, he was a household name in, well, more than one household anyway. He would really made it as a mathematician. He was really famous as far as we're concerned. But he did also win one prize he'd probably rather forget, and that is the 1997 Ig Nobel Prize for Literature. And it was for the same paper that I'm nominating him for tonight's award. That paper appeared, uh, co-authored with Witzdam and Rosenberg, uh, appeared in Statistical Science, Volume 9, 1994, pages 429 to 438, under the title of Equidistant Letter Sequences in the Book of Genesis. Okay. Now, Statistical Science is a really respectable journal, and its editor, Robert Cass, felt obliged to introduce this paper by saying, our referees were baffled, we therefore offer this paper as a challenging puzzle to the reader. 
In modern parlance, he would have just said, WTF. <laughs> Clearly, this was no ordinary paper. So uh, to explain what the fuss is about, I need to explain, uh, diverge a little and explain to you what an ELS, or equidistant letter sequence is. And to do that, I'm going to uh, remind you of a game that kids used to play before they had iPhones to catch their Pokemon with. And that involved writing a message on a long strip of paper in such a way that the message could only be read by wrapping the strip around a cylinder of the appropriate diameter and then reading along the length of the cylinder. Sing out if you ever did this as a kid. Anyone? Yeah, great. Okay, it's probably not as much fun on an app, but anyway. <laughs> this game involves what's called an equidistant letter sequence, or ELS, uh, because as you read along the cylinder, you're actually sampling from the longer message at equally spaced intervals. So that's all it is, it's a very simple idea. And it's a very simple game. It turns out, in fact, that ancient Hebrew is a really good language to play this game in because it was written without vowels. And that means that the reader can supply whichever vowels wherever they feel they fit. And that gives you a much greater chance of being able to read uh, some given string of characters as, a, as an intelligible word or phrase. So Rips and his colleagues looked for these ELSs in the Hebrew text of the book of Genesis. They looked for the names of famous rabbis and unsurprisingly found them all. <laughs> Big deal. But they also looked for the, name, for, for the dates rather, of death and birth of those same rabbis and found that this information was correlated at a significance level they claimed of P equals 0.00002. We're talking about rabbis who lived thousands of years after the book of Genesis was written. So the implications of this, if true, were nothing short of astounding. And yet, three expert referees for statistical science couldn't find the trick. WT capital F, <laughs> right? The, the very idea is preposterous. It should have been stillborn because equidistant letter sequences are incredibly fragile to very minor textual changes and there's no way that the, the text has survived intact to the modern day. It, just no way. So, but let's not spoil a good story with inconvenient things like facts. Um, <laughs> smart people who should have known better jumped on board this bandwagon, including people like Harold Gans, who was a, a leading codebreaker for the NSA at the time. And soon enough, the media took an interest. Rips was interviewed by a, a reporter from the Washington Post by the name of Michael Drosnan, and uh, he demonstrated all of the gritty, hard-nosed skepticism you'd expect from a seasoned reporter and swallowed this thing hook, line, and sinker. <laughs> uh, and Rips trained him how to look for ELSs, and he went away and looked for historical events and was amazed at how many he found. So he would find man on moon near, a, near another ELS that said spaceship, and he would find Kennedy near one that says Dallas. You know, you get the idea, okay? But if historical events are there, then, then maybe future ones are as well. And, and this, unfortunately, is where Drosnan got lucky. It is a historical fact that in 1994, Michael Drosnan warned the Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin that Yitzhak Rabin appeared as an ELS in the book, uh, in, in the Old Testament, crossing an ELS that says, assassin will assassinate. And it is a tragedy on so many levels that a year later this prediction was actually fulfilled. Never mind that it was in the seething cauldron of Israeli politics at the time, this was hardly an astronomically unlikely event. It's a, it's a bit like me going out and saying, you know, this Turnbull character 
he's not going to last a full three-year term. It's like, <laughs> maybe he will, maybe he won't, but you, you wouldn't put your house on it either way, that's all I'm saying. <laughs> Nevertheless, the, the reporter had his scoop, and he, he rushed out a book to capitalise on it. It was called The Bible Code, uh, and millions bought it. And millions bought it, in the other sense. Scarily, some of them even started using it as a decision-making tool. I have it on good authority that these include, for instance, a senior executive at Singapore Airlines. Now, the, the fact that Singapore Airlines is still flying is probably some kind of testament to the irrelevance of management decisions. <laughs> we, just, we just have to hope that the pilots don't start deciding which button to press next based on the Bible code. But uh, maybe that's what happened in MH370, you know, I don't know. Well, have you got a better theory? No. Anyway. The, the, the problem with all of this is that human brains are wired to see patterns. We love to find patterns. It helps us to find that tiger who's lurking in the undergrowth, which is clearly useful. But we've got too good at it. So we see a man in the moon. We see animals when we look at shapes of clouds. And we see the Virgin Mary in a piece of burnt toast. We're just too good at finding patterns. We really love to find order in chaos. And we'll find it even when it's not there. Obviously, if you understand probability and you understand how to design an experiment, then you can test for order within chaos. Unfortunately, Michael Dawson doesn't understand probability or experiment design, and this is fairly conspicuous if you read his work. So he's fairly easy to discount, but Rips, on the other hand, did know. He was a canny operator, and he really understood these things. Uh, so his work is a lot more subtle, and uh, it, it's worth talking a little bit more about it. So what did they do? They chose as their rabbis the, all of the rabbis who had at least three columns worth of text written about them in Margalioth's Encyclopedia of the Great Men of Israel. Okay, that's a, that's a great objective test of who's famous and who's not, so tick to that. Unfortunately, they were much less systematic when they chose the dates, so they didn't just use the dates that were in the encyclopedia, which would have made sense. They actually cherry-picked them from a variety of sources without rhyme or reason. And they exercised a lot of discretion as well in how to write those dates. So today, uh, in English, could be expressed as October the 5th, or the 5th of October, or October 5, or the 5th day of October, and so on. We have lots of different ways to specify today. And Hebrew, if anything, has more. They didn't use a consistent form of the date, and they certainly didn't use the dates uh, exactly as written in the encyclopedia. So they had a lot of discretion. And they used a similar amount of discretion in the exact spelling of the names of the rabbis and the appellations that they gave and so on. So lots of choices. They also used a very arcane and uh, arbitrary method of judging when two ELSs were close, which is, after all, the kind of central part of the experiment. And I'm sure that Rips fully understood how many different ways there were to define such a thing, and I'm sure he tried a whole bunch before he found the one that worked the best. Uh, although he, of course, denies this. Um, but it is clear that they had a lot of discretion, they had a lot of little decisions, and, and by tweaking each of those little decisions, they were able to add up to overall a very impressive effect. Unfortunately, it took a few years for this to come out, and actually there's an there's a, uh, Australian connection here too, because one of the leading debunkers was Professor Brendan McKay at the ANU. Uh, when Rip said on television in 1997, I will take my critics seriously when they find a message about the assassination of a prime minister in the text of Moby Dick. This was too much temptation for Brendan to resist. <laughs> he, 
He duly went out and found the assassinations of Indira Gandhi, JFK, Abraham Lincoln, Leon Trotsky, and the death of Diana, all in the text of Moby Dick. <laughs> Predictably, Drosnan did, did not honor his promise. He actually trotted out a second book called Bible Code 2, The Countdown, in, in, in which he predicted, among other catastrophes, a smallpox epidemic in 2005, remember that, and, and, a, and an atomic holocaust in 2006. Now, there are days, and maybe even weeks, when I'm too busy to catch up on the news, but I sort of think that this is a story that might have caught up with me one way or another, so let's, let's just assume it didn't happen. Drosnan wasn't done. He, he brought out a third book in which he humbly admitted that he got it all wrong from the start. Oh, I wish. No, actually, it was called Bible Code 3, Saving the World, in which he proclaimed that the only reason we didn't have an atomic holocaust in 2006 is that he'd warned all the world leaders about it, and so they'd had time to prevent it. <laughs> Clearly, they wouldn't have thought to do so otherwise. What I love about this is he's actually taking credit for the failure of his own predictions. <laughs> it's sheer genius. I mean, so every day when you wake up and find that your constituent particles haven't been scattered by some radioactive fireball, I want you to thank this humble great man that, <laughs> that you are alive. Who buys these books? I mean, seriously. <laughs> to his credit, Rips did eventually realise that this guy he'd been working with for quite a few years, Drosnan, was actually an A-grade nutter and publicly disowned him, but the damage was done. There will always be people who look for codes in the Bible. Even the great Sir Isaac Newton, as uncomfortable as it is for us, spent more time looking for such things than he did inventing calculus or, or pondering the, the mysteries of celestial mechanics. The problem now is that, that modern computers have brought these things literally to everyone's fingertips, which makes them very accessible. And this particular code has two other very notable features. Obviously, uh, as far as I know, it's the only one that was published in a reputable academic outlet by a rep reputable academic. And by the way, the reason I'm singling out Rips is that his co two co-authors had no academic standing to speak of, but he was actually genuinely quite famous. So I'm pinning most of the blame on him. Uh, and the other is, of course, that, that Drosnan did have this one fairly spectacular success in anticipating the future, his other fairly spectacular failures notwithstanding. But uh, yeah, I feel obliged to point out that you know, if, if Rips was going to look for a mathematical pattern in the Old Testament, he was looking in the wrong place. I mean, why look in the first book, the book of Genesis, when he could be looking in the fourth book, the book of Numbers? I mean. <laughs> Surely. But, but actually, uh, the more I think about it, actually, Genesis is probably the appropriate place because it's a story about making something out of absolutely nothing, <laughs> which is a very appropriate description of what Ribs did. So I think there's two take-home messages from this, uh, probably things we already knew. Uh, the first is that uh, human gullibility knows no rational bound. Uh, and, and the second is that it's actually really easy to predict the future uh, as long as you do it retrospectively. <laughs> so, so for cooking up a very elaborate hoax and for lending his significant academic reputation to enhance its credibility and thereby misleading millions of people, 
the award for the most diabolical mathematical arch villain goes to Professor Eliyahu Rips. <laughs>